I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on June 27, 2021. Episode 24, The Recent Assault on Freedom of Religion in the United States. Religion has been the basis for persecution essentially for the entire history of man. The times leading up to our country's founding were no different, and indeed, many who made their way to the lands that would become the United States of America did so to escape religious persecution. But they were not always tolerant of opposing religious views themselves. French Protestants, Huguenots, escaped religious persecution suffered in their home country of France to settle in places like Charleston, South Carolina, and Jacksonville, Florida. Spanish Catholics, however, already in much of Florida, did not welcome these Protestant heretics, with word being sent to the Spanish king after a massacre of many of them that these people had been hanged for, quote, scattering the odious Lutheran doctrine in these provinces. The arrival of the Puritans at the Massachusetts Bay Colony added another religious layer in that the colony did not permit those of differing beliefs to remain there. Quakers, Catholics, Jews, and other non-Puritans were exiled, and some ended up forming other settlements in different areas. What the history throughout Western civilization, and indeed the world, did tell our founders was if this new nation was to survive, it must welcome all who are willing to engage in this wild experiment called America. In 1779, Thomas Jefferson, as governor of Virginia, attempted to get a religious freedom law enacted, but was unsuccessful. It would be just a short time later, in 1791, with ratification of the Bill of Rights, which included the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that freedom of religion would become guaranteed against infringement by this new government. James Madison, who would go on to be the primary author of the First Amendment, indicated his views on religion and its ability to cause undesired factions, when in Federalist Number 10, he explained the following, The latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man, and we see them everywhere brought into different degrees of activity according to the different circumstances of civil society. A zeal for different opinions concerning religion, concerning government, and many other points. And in Federalist 51, Madison elaborated on the importance of separation of powers and the other checks and balances included in the U.S. Constitution to ensure that the rights of minorities are protected through this newly developed system. 
On that topic, Madison disclosed much of the genius of the new republic being formed and its intent to protect one part of society from the wills of another. He wrote this, Whilst all authority in the federal government will be derived from and dependent on the society, the society itself will be broken into so many parts, interests, and classes of citizens that the rights of individuals or of the minority will be in little danger from interested combinations of the majority. In a free government, the security for civil rights must be the same as that for religious rights. It consists in the one case in the multiplicity of interests and in the other in the multiplicity of sex. Similarly, the nation's first president, George Washington, wrote that the establishment of civil and religious liberty was the motive that induced me to the field of battle. Contrary to some recent reinventions of our nation's founding as based on the maintenance of slavery, it was, in fact, civil rights and liberties, including religious liberties, that were the motivating conditions. And Washington went further, explaining that the consciousness, scruples of all men, the conscious scruples of all men should be treated with great delicacy and tenderness, and it is my wish and desire that the laws may always be extensively accommodated to them, as a due regard for the protection and essential interests of the nation may justify and permit. Though as discussed in earlier episodes, the framers of the Constitution did not necessarily view the Bill of Rights as necessary, as their view was the authority given the new federal government was sufficiently limited to only that expressed, expressly delegated to it, the states had concerns and sought to ensure there were areas of life into which this new federal government could not intrude. The First Amendment is part of that protection, and it provides, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. These provisions are commonly referred to as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. It is worth noting that nothing in this provision actually separates church and state in the manner of today's understanding, but instead prohibits a state-established religion, or state interference with any citizen's exercise of a religious belief. Through the years, court cases have attempted, and not always well, to apply this protection, and the resulting court opinions weave an unnecessarily complicated web of rules and restrictions, many of which would be unrecognizable to those like James Madison, who actually wrote and adopted this amendment. discussion of religious freedom as it stands today in the United States must dive at least some into the cases that have led to claimed interpretation of what the seemingly simple words of the First Amendment actually mean. It's important in reviewing key cases involving religion to separate out how the courts have interpreted and applied the Establishment Clause and how they've handled the Free Exercise Clause, because these two clauses occasionally appear to be in conflict. Addressing the Establishment Clause first leads to several key decisions that have shaped how our legal system views religious freedom. But before discussing exactly what it means for the government to establish a religion, the fact that adoption of the 14th Amendment has been viewed as applying the First Amendment not only to the federal but also to the state and local governments is important, as now the limitations on governmental action apply to all levels of government in our system. It's not easy to boil down the law on the Establishment Clause, because the Supreme Court's consideration of cases involving it have been less than consistent, but there are some guiding principles that are used in the Court's analysis. In 1971, for example, in the case of Lemon v. Kurtzman, the Court announced a test to determine if government action violated the Establishment Clause. The Court looked to three aspects of the governmental action in question to reach a conclusion. First, was the government's action for a secular, non-religious purpose? Second, Can it be said that neither the principal nor primary effect of the government action advanced or inhibited a particular religion? And third, the action must not foster excessive government entanglement in religion. 
The problem with this three-part lemon test is that it's not easy to apply, and the court appears to pick and choose when it will actually apply it. Such an elusive legal test is not helpful and takes away from the proper consideration of the actual language itself. Is a religion being established by the government? In 1984, the Supreme Court appeared to adopt a new, slightly different version of the Lemon Test in the case of Lynch v. Donnelly, in which the court attempted to determine whether the Establishment Clause was violated by asking the question whether the government action made, quote, adherence to a religion relevant in any way to a person standing in the political community, end quote. As you're likely starting to realize, these tests invite more questions than they answer. So the court tried again in the 1992 decision of Lee v. Wiseman when it described the legal question as whether the government action is coercing a person into supporting or participating a religion. These tests follow the Lemon decision, following the Lemon decision are often described as the endorsement test and the coercion test, and both can be viewed as adaptations, though not entirely in line with, Lemon. But the court has reached decisions that apply none of these variations of legal tests to determine adherence to the Establishment Clause. In other words, the court appears to pick and choose and sometimes create new test in determining whether something violates this clause of the Constitution. In March versus Chambers, for example, the court seemingly abandoned these earlier tests to uphold having a paid chaplain open legislative sessions, looking instead to the fact that the First Amendment's drafters were the same men who had drafted the law that allowed for such a chaplain. It is here that we perhaps see the first spotlight on the fact that prior court decisions cared less about what was intended by the First Amendment and more about what they wanted the First Amendment to mean. As with so much of constitutional and all law, we are back at considering what proper role the court should play in interpreting, and what rules they should follow in interpreting, the plain language and intended meaning of our constitutional provisions. It is worth noting that our founders were generally a religious group. It was not religion they sought banned from public life, but a state-selected, state-imposed religion. In a community comprised of so many different sects, as Madison recognized, no chosen religion would be forced on the citizens of the United States. And though the language regarding the separation of church and state goes back to a statement made by Thomas Jefferson, it is also important to realize that the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause are of equal importance. And since both protect rights of the people, it can be a challenge often to read them in a way that does not put one clause in conflict with the other. As a starting point in discussing the Free Exercise Clause, it must be acknowledged that the language of the clause itself provides for no exceptions— If you have a religion, you are free to exercise it. The problem does come in where one's exercise of religion interferes with the rights of another. In other words, there is is there going to be some point at which one may have a right to believe in human sacrifice, for example, but not the right to exercise it by committing murder in order to provide such human sacrifice. When it comes to situations where the free exercise clause is most often to come up, it is in relation to laws that prevent some claimed religious observation or action. So, for example, laws prohibiting bigamy or polygamy are generally upheld as they do not target any religion and apply to everyone, just as a law against murder does technically prevent human sacrifice, even in a religious ceremony, but it applies to everyone equally regardless of religion. Where government action may go to the point of infringing this guaranteed right is in situations where one's religious observance does not cause harm to others, but does run afoul of various other laws or rules. These situations can include things that would prevent someone from wearing traditional religious dress or observing certain religious holidays, or in some of the most recent situations, the right to refuse to perform some service that conflicts with one's religious beliefs. From the mid-20th century, when the Free Exercise Clause was deemed applicable to the states via the 14th Amendment, until 1990, so for about 50 years, 
the courts were pretty consistent that in order for the government to be lawful and acting in any way that arguably interfered with one's religious exercise, the government must show it had a compelling state interest in the law that was at issue. This test makes some sense, as the court adopted the compelling state interest test to apply to fundamental rights, such that only in situations where a law, if it did burden religion, could be valid, was where you could be proven to serve a compelling state interest. This strict scrutiny was required where the law negatively impacted a fundamental right, of which religious freedom is generally considered. And until 1990, even a law that was neutral on its face could be successfully challenged if it unduly burdened one's exercise of religion. The cases adopting and applying this method for considering challenges to state action came often where an individual sought exemption to a law or a practice based on religion. The courts were faced, admittedly, with protecting religious freedom while recognizing that claims of religious belief for the basis of noncompliance with law does open up its own can of worms. It is for that reason. It is often required to prove that the religious belief is sincerely held. But again, this is a legal test that is hard truly to define, as so many are when faced with questions related to religious freedom. In 1990, however, the Supreme Court issued a decision that would upend free exercise jurisprudence. Though the opinion in Employment Division v. Smith was authored by Justice Scalia, whose career was primarily a tribute to the Founders' language and intent, this decision did not benefit the law, nor did it uphold the Founders' promises as set out in the First Amendment. In the Smith decision, the Court seemingly abandoned its prior requirements related to government actions that created an impediment to religious practice. In the Smith case, two individuals were terminated from their employment when they tested positive for drug use. The positive drug test resulted from those employees, who were members of the Native American Church, because of use of peyote during one of the church's ceremonies. The employees were terminated and then denied unemployment benefits by the state due to the fact their terminations were based on their own misconduct, this drug use. Justice Scalia's opinion in this case demonstrates the delicate balance the law must attempt to reach between allowing exceptions to generally applicable laws for religious reasons and not allowing, as Justice Scalia reiterated from prior concerns, a person to become a law unto himself. He further was concerned that allowing individuals to claim religious reasons for exemption from criminal laws, like the criminal ban on the use of peyote, would create anarchy. Justice Scalia's concerns are not invalid, but as seen in hindsight by the court's handling of later free exercise cases, the opinion invited a sort of backlash against religion that flies in the face of the purpose of the religious freedom clauses of the First Amendment. It was for this reason a push for legislation occurred that brought the likes of the ACLU, Concerned Women for America, and other groups across the political spectrum together to push for passage, and ultimately to achieve passage, of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, in 1993. The full reach of RIFRA was short-lived as the Supreme Court struck down the law as applied to state and local governments based on its conclusion that it required more religious protection than the First Amendment actually did. But in essence, the Smith case is an example of the judicial branch again claiming some preeminence, and in challenging RIFRA the same, when it comes to the other two branches in terms of what is or is not meant by constitutional provisions. And the debate whether that is proper is not today's discussion. What today's discussion is intended to accomplish is to demonstrate how unpredictable the judiciary has been in applying the religious freedom clauses of the First Amendment, in particular, particular the Free Exercise Clause, and to highlight some recent social issues that have the potential either to help clarify what protections are really afforded to us in terms of religion, and whether the unpredictability and inconsistency of the First Amendment law is itself a serious threat to the religion that you may want to practice in the United States. 
and the laws that now impact religious practice certainly go beyond what the founders would have considered acceptable. Looking again to George Washington in a letter he wrote in 1789 to the United Baptists in Virginia, he explained it clearly. He wrote, If I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed in the Convention, where I had the honor to preside, might possibly endanger the religious rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature to it. And if I could not conceive that the general government might ever be so administered as to render the liberty of conscience insecure, I beg you will persuade I beg you will be persuaded that no one would be more zealous than myself to establish the effectual barriers against the horrors of spiritual tyranny and every species of religious persecution. In other words, it's clear he viewed the right to practice one's religion to be one of the unalienable rights given to all men. The court has agreed at times, but hasn't always upheld these religious freedoms. As the court did recognize in the Lynch case, the Constitution affirmatively mandates accommodation, not merely tolerance of all religions, and forbids hostility towards any. This is the principle that has more guided the Establishment Clause cases, though not always resulting in the correct decision, but is less consistently applied when it comes to free exercise. With the most recent restrictions placed on us by our governments during the pandemic, including numerous restrictions on religious practice, a real look at this issue also requires a look at some of the most recent cases that have struck down government action, where both neutral in its, on its face or seemingly targeted, targeting religion, where the effect is essentially to shut down traditional means of exercising one's faith. And with the many recent pushes for a more Marxist society that mandates education of children that includes transgender and critical race theory subjects required for even elementary age students, where materials introduced in our country that is objectionable and often in direct conflict with very, very many religious beliefs, it may be more important than ever to begin a vigilant protection of all men's freedoms, including the key freedom of religion. Though the court has continued to struggle with religious issues, and Smith still remains the law as applies to the Free Exercise Clause, cases presenting issues of exemption from laws due to religious belief continue to increase. From laws that require employers to provide health insurance and that that health insurance include coverage for contraceptives, abortions, or other health care choices that may conflict with religious teachings of the employer, to laws that make it a violation of state law to refuse to provide a service to those in certain categories, including gay and lesbian and transgender individuals, even if the one to provide the service believes such lifestyles to be against his religious teachings, to pandemic-era closings of religious services while operations like bars and tattoo parlors were permitted to remain open as essential businesses, to policies and laws that prevent one to speak about religion in public places, including schools, attempt to restrict one's practice of faith, are numerous. And though these laws are not often directed specifically at the religious individuals, organizations, or institutions they affect, the impact is clear and obvious in many instances. The ideas with which the Supreme Court has so struggled when one's religion can exempt compliance with a law becomes more troubling as the government invades more and more of private life even when not viewed as an intentional assault on religion, that the government is moving more and more toward legislating minute details of individuals, more opportunities for infringement on religious freedoms present themselves. What may be most disturbing is that so many religious freedom cases exist at all when these religious freedoms were so central to our founders' concerns when the decision was made to break from Britain and to form this new nation. A brief review of just some of the cases that have percolated through our court system in recent years demonstrates a constant push against religious freedom and a now not-so-secret move to transfer individual freedom and autonomy to the state. 
the following governmental actions have resulted in legal cases to protect those seeking to exercise their religious rights. Challenges to prohibitions on religious organizations from using public buildings, while other groups are free to use these public spaces for organizations with other purposes. These equal access cases highlight a common leftist strategy, which is to grab onto some phrase that does not actually fully describe a legal principle or appear in the Constitution, like separation of church and state, and to bastardize the actual legal principle to further an agenda. And in these equal access cases, that agenda is furthered by trying to keep religious organizations out of public places to hold their meetings and further their cause. Laws forcing private pregnancy centers to include messaging that is counter to the organization's religious principles, most commonly requiring that these pregnancy centers include counseling on abortion. The suppression of religious speech on college and university campuses, where more and more only speech deemed acceptable by the Marxist faculty is allowed full freedom, despite the First Amendment's inclusion of religious freedom in the same provision that also includes the right to speak. Schools routinely ban religious speech while seeking to force speech or action counter to the religious beliefs of their students. Indeed, teachers either seem to misunderstand the First Amendment so thoroughly that they regularly tell students they cannot reference the Bible, sing songs referencing God, or otherwise use religious texts or other materials in school assignments, or the teachers' unions have instructed their members to so falsely claim to avoid having to confront religious materials that are actually protected by the First Amendment. To be clear, the First Amendment provides absolutely no prohibition on private citizens' religious activity. It does just the opposite, prohibiting the state, including public educational institutions, from prohibiting students' reference to their faiths. Christian daycare centers have been told by state licensing officials to remove references to God on classroom walls, social media, though private entities at this point are coming under more scrutiny as their policies regularly censor religious posts, And it's more and more clear that identity politics is the religion of the 21st century, such that some involved in the Biden administration, including transition team member Chai Feldblum, has written statements like this one. Protecting one group's identity may, at times, require that we burden others' belief liberty. And lest anyone think this exchange of identity freedom to replace religious freedoms, some of the most popular legal cases in recent years highlight the threat is real. Don't doubt it. When baker Jack Phillips was asked to bake and decorate a cake for a gay wedding to include messaging in the form of his art that celebrated such a wedding, he refused based on his religious beliefs while offering to sell the couple a basic cake. He was sued, and following Colorado court decisions that would have forced him to create this work of art for a marriage that was counter to his own beliefs, the Supreme Court ultimately did restore some faith, no pun intended, although in very limited fashion, in the upholding of his religious freedoms by ruling in front favor of Phillips. Of course, this decision did not stop Phillips from continuing to be harassed by state regulators, and Phillips found himself just this year back in court for refusing to create a cake celebrating a gender transition, another concept counter to his religious views. The lesson here is that the court cannot be the only protector of religious freedom, not only because it has been inconsistent in doing so, but because the attack on religion is too widespread to be countered only through legal cases. And though the Supreme Court recently upheld the right of a Catholic adoption organization not to work with same-sex couples— as part of that organization's work with the state on adoptions or the city on adoptions based on religious beliefs, the court typically goes out of its way to explain how limited its holdings are in these of the most egregious cases. And this year has been full of clues as to how far the left will go to curb religious freedom. Some of the currently pending examples include the following. The Equality Act, known as H.R. 5, is a key priority of the Democrats in Congress and President Biden. What does this legislation do that has so many concerns about religious freedom? What could be wrong with something called the Equality Act? 
as a starting point and as just one example, though it purports to be an anti-discrimination bill, its goals become clear from its actual terms, and those goals include the shutting down of any opposition to an ideology that claims there are no biological distinctions between men and women. It would permit opposition to the recent push to accept the concept that gender is fluid, a concept not accepted by most major religions. California Representative Jared Huffman went so far as to accuse the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops of politically weaponizing religion because they're considering taking the position that President Biden, acclaimed practicing Catholic, should be denied communion as long as he publicly holds the view and works to further the policies to support broad abortion rights, a position that's counter to Catholic doctrine. Here, it is Representative Huffman who tries to claim the issue is being politicized when the Catholic Church's teachings on abortion have not changed and that communion cannot be given to those who have sinned against those teachings and not confessed and been forgiven for such sins. Representative Huffman proposes stripping the organization of its tax-exempt status for taking this position, a deeply held, long-standing Catholic belief. And Huffman is not alone. He was joined by 60 other House Democrats, who all claim they are Catholic, while taking public positions against their own claimed church's teachings. Pope Francis has made repeated statements confirming that the ending of a life by abortion is not acceptable within the Catholic religion. Far from the religious freedom that did become somewhat of a priority in the Trump Department of Justice, the Biden administration seems to have taken aim at religious liberty. It chose to appeal a court decision that would allow religious hospitals and doctors to opt out of offering or performing gender transition procedures. And though many of the restrictions have now been rescinded, let's briefly visit all the power grabs to control and restrict religion that occurred in the name of public health and safety during the past year and a half due to the pandemic. And these are just a handful. In New York, Governor Cuomo limited church attendance and identified, quote, red zones to just 10 members of the church congregation. These attempts to shut down religious services were at least struck down by the court late last year. Governor Newsom in California closed churches while strip clubs and similar entertainment businesses were permitted to remain open. And in Nevada, limited church attendance to only 50 people regardless of church capacity was a restriction in place at the same time casinos could operate with 50% capacity. Church members and pastors across the country were fined and even jailed for attempting to meet for religious observances during the pandemic. Once tested by the courts, these kinds of restrictions were not permitted, but it did not stop the government from trying to shut down religious practice. What is the real risk of infringements on religious freedom, other than the obvious deconstruction of our Constitution and the risk of persecution? Well, it's that it also opens up those who are no longer guaranteed access and freedom in their beliefs to be more susceptible to the indoctrination into a social ideology in place of religious foundation. Indoctrination cannot occur in the face of genuinely held religious beliefs. A foundation that rests on some power greater than oneself and on a defined moral compass is not as easily convinced on things that are not objectively true. The attack on religion by the left is no accident. The shift to cultural Marxism that began its slow burn in our institutions in the 20th century and has exploded into accepted present-day thought cannot coexist with traditional religion. Marxism itself must replace religion. Antonio Gramsci, a significant Marxist in Italy, promulgated the concept that Marxism was not going to succeed by violent revolution, but by somewhat covert transformation of Western traditions to cast those traditions as on the side of evil and to take steps to trend public opinion more in favor of Marxist ideas. In so very many of the left's activists, we see warnings that religious liberty cannot be allowed to stand if their visions for society are to prevail. But the left is not satisfied to attempt to discredit religion. 
but it also wants to co-opt it for its own purposes, a two-sided attack on the traditional understanding of man's God-given rights and freedom. Various church leaders now openly advocate for socialism and communism by attempting to characterize religious doctrines as requiring such a society. This is in direct conflict to church teachings in the early 20th century, when churches, including the Roman Catholic Church, referred to communism as a satanic scourge on the earth. But look more deeply at the founders of socialist principles, Marx, Lenin, Mao, and you'll find one thing they had in common, a disdain for religion. Marx actually characterized religion this way. There is nothing more abominable than religion. And Lenin acknowledged that everyone must be free to be an atheist because that is what all socialists must be. Lenin did not stop there. He went on to explain, Marxism is materialism. As such, it, it, it is as relentlessly hostile to religion. He believed Marxists must combat religion. Those leading the charge at BLM, those pushing critical race theory, those seeking to force religious believers into a society where they're forced to act in ways counter to their own religious beliefs, are almost always admitted Marxists and democratic socialists. Political identities they have given themselves and that we should accept as true, and as such, they are not only a threat to religious freedom, but have as one of their purposes the destruction of such freedom. That some who hold positions of leadership in their church organizations and who also affiliate with today's American democratic socialists are not surprising. The fact that they are appearing to help the enemy, appearing to take actions on the socialist communist side that are counter their beliefs, is exactly what was expected of them. Lenin himself recognized the usefulness of such persons to the ends of socialism, even if those ends are inherently in conflict with most of the world's religions. Lenin had this to say about the use of those foolish enough from the church to support socialist ideas. It cannot be asserted once and for all that priests cannot be members of the Social Democratic Party, but neither can the reverse rule be laid down. If a priest comes to us to take part in our common political work and conscientiously performs party duties without opposing the program of the party, he may be allowed to join the ranks of the Social Democrats. For the contradiction between the spirit and principles of our program and the religious convictions of the priest would in such circumstances be something that concerned him alone, his own private contradiction. In other words, socialism won't turn away the help of confused church leaders whose very support contradicts their purported beliefs, but there can be no doubt that the tenets of socialism are in conflict with almost all organized religions. There is not much new in today's Marxist strategy and the willingness to use any useful idiot to further the goal, but the existence that this is the goal is finally coming to the surface, hiding in plain sight, such that if we do not combat it now, it may be too late, not only for religious freedom, but for all freedom. Those, though those moving us toward an undemocratic society are more bold in their statements today than even a few years ago, does not eliminate the fact that they do continue to use language and to redefine it to attempt to cloak their dangerous ideas in terms that sound appealing until the real meaning is revealed. Just consider the current movements in the forefront of political debate. Identity acceptance, equity, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-discrimination, health care, voter suppression, disinformation, pro-choice, and more. These words all, without understanding what they actually mean when used by the left, sound unobjectionable, but are in fact cover for truly shocking challenges to the very system our founders created to protect us all in our own lives and in our own individual freedoms. Religious freedom was a cornerstone of that system, and allowing it to crumble will lead to the disintegration of the United States. As always, thank you for listening. All politics is religion. Merriam-Webster defines religion as a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices, or as a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. 
and it defines politics as the political opinions or sympathies of a person. What can such politics be if not the political choice one seeks to have enacted as a result of some set of beliefs, a religion? You cannot completely separate religion from politics, nor was that the goal of the founders. Instead, an understanding and respect for the fact that one set of beliefs or belief system will be the underpinning of political opinion is all the more reason to protect one's right to believe and practice freely. Alexis de Tocqueville understood the relationship between religion and this new nation's goals of freedom when he wrote that the character of our civilization is the product of two perfectly distinct elements that elsewhere have often made war with each other, but which, in America, they have succeeded in incorporating somehow into one another and combining marvelously. I mean to speak of the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom. Next week, I will discuss the destruction of our children. From critical race theory to transgender course material to the continued masking of children in public settings to the pushing of vac- to vaccinate young children, the damage being done to our most vulnerable must stop if future generations are going to be in any position competently to govern our society and fight for the freedoms that make America the most special place on earth. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the podcast. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy or need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Scepter. Copyright 2021.